that's a pretty uh, pretty amazing passage there, and it's the, a passage which, on a number of occasions, has been subject of amazing pieces of art. Um, you might have seen some of that art down through the years. It's one of those incredible moments, and and in a in a way, it really sets us up uh, for our preparation for Christmas, which is surprising. Um, but understanding this moment where John the Baptist is beginning the introduction of Jesus, if you like, the coming of Jesus onto the scene is essential in our understanding uh, of our Advent time and then ultimately our celebration of Jesus' birth. I'm going to start in a strange place today. I've just watched over the past um, past couple of weeks, I guess, um, we we don't do the whole binge watching thing. We we tend to just want to watch one at a time. But we've watched the the Queen's Gambit, which was a brilliant uh, series on Netflix. It's the it's the fictional story following the life of Beth Harmon and the impact of being an orphan and the influence of a suicidal mother, the impact of the uh, the mother that she was. Uh, she brought into her into her home her adopted mother, uh, and then this ge- genius of a child who who goes on to uh, become a, a grand master and world beating chess player. For once, there's a ref- really refreshing storyline where the the shy school janitor does not become her abuser, but becomes her teacher opens the door for her to understand this amazing game of chess. Uh, and that that whole journey of uh, a storyline of a life centered around the, uh, the game of chess, it seems to me as though there's been a bit of an upsurge. I've read a couple of news articles that have said that chess is on the up because of this uh, particular uh, film series. Chess is an amazing game. It, it's an ancient game. We think probably about 1,500 years old. But in lots of ways, it, it prepares us as a backdrop for our talk today. It's the battle of the kings. It's In lots of ways, it's the picture of the storyline of the world, good versus evil, death versus life. Um, And in lots of ways, we see this in this particular moment, in this bleak, desperate picture of the death of John the Baptist, which we want to think about. I mentioned a few minutes ago that in lots of ways, it prepares us for Advent. Advent, in lots of ways, speaks first and foremost about the darkness of the world that we live in. Here's John, our fiery prophet. I often think about John as being one of those one of those men in the in the mess storyline of the Bible. He never took a step backwards. He has this unswerving uh, willingness to keep on moving forward, to take this message to the people uh, of Judea, to repent, to turn around, to be baptized, to be cleansed, to live a life of faith. He doesn't step back when the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, come and challenge him. He stays right in their face. We read in this particular section that 
the reason that John is killed is because of the way that he did not take a step back when it comes to his confrontation of the king, King Herod. This particular Herod is the son of the King Herod that we read about during the birth of Jesus. It seems as if the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree when it comes to the patterns of behavior of Herod Antipas, this, this second Herod, reflecting in so many ways the pattern of his father, this um, vindictive, horrific, powerful leader. I will think when we look at that, when we look at the pattern of behavior that we see laid out before us in this particular story, and we might be shocked by it, but the reality is that it is emblematic, really, of the world in which we live in. We live in a broken, dark, violent, abusive, corrupt world. We know the story of Jamal Khashoggi, the dissident journalist who confronted the Saudi Arabian leadership, went into the Saudi Arabian embassy and was never seen again. All of the indications were that he was horrifically and awfully killed in that place. When, when truth speaks to power, when weakness conf confronts power, again and again and again, whether it's on the world level or whether it's on the family level or whether it's on the, uh, the street level, when we see the horrific abuse of, of individuals, when we see the abuse of young women caught up in gang culture, we know that we live in a broken, brutal, violent, corrupt world. That is the world that we live in. Advent prepares us for that, and that is the reason for the season. That is the reason why the coming of Jesus is good news, because Jesus breaks in to this violent, corrupt world. He dives to the very bottom of the bleakness of this world. So let's think in those terms. Let's consider the reflection of this particular incident with the world that we live in and the, the way in which Jesus becomes the message that speaks to us in the context of this dreadful situation. The first thing that we see is the, the injustice of the king. We've got that reading in front of us now. John is beheaded ultimately. In fact, this particular text, uh, Matthew is reflecting much later on uh, Jesus, uh, rather Herod, hearing the reports of Jesus. We see that in verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is already dead. But Matthew uses it as an introduction to describe to us how it was that John lost his life. It's a story of the complexities of corruption, power battles, lust, hubris, the power of the ongoing impact of our conscience. All of those powerful, huge storyline themes are contained in this 
few verses. I want us to pause for a minute and just reflect on the storyline. Why is it that John is in prison? Why is it that he is there in the first place? The reason that he's there, we see in verse 3, is because he's been arrested by Herod because he has confronted Herod about Herod's behavior with regards to his brother's wife, Herodias. We see that John in that particular calling, really, to confront unrighteousness, he doesn't focus on the ordinary people alone. He goes to the very top. He goes to the man who has been called at this moment to be the the king placed in tetrarch actually means he's the ruler of a quarter. Herod, the ruler of the quarter, the Judean quarter, he's, he's a Jew who is placed in leadership by the Roman Empire. Uh, and he finds himself there in this place. He is representative of the kingship of God's people. And John does not step back, but confronts him. And he says, you have stolen your brother's wife. You know that it is against the the law of God. Uh, Your incestuous relationship with your brother's wife, Herod, is bad, is evil, is corrupt. He does not hold back. He is that, that seeming weakness that does not step back in the face of power, but calls to account with the demand to repent across the whole breadth of society. This prophet who rages justice, who, sorry, rages against injustice and proclaims judgment. The coming king is coming to judge you. It seems very clear in this story that Herodias is not a weak victim victim. Her pattern of behavior, it seems to me, in the way that it's portrayed, in the way that it unfolds, is absolutely wanting to silence this prophet who is causing every possibility for her place at this supreme uh, position of power is threatened. It's It's Herod's birthday party. And it seems to me as though the way it unfolds, the way it's described elsewhere, it seems to me as though the man that Herod is, is reflected in the pattern of his birthday party. It seems this is not some genteel cocktail evening. Rather, in a graphic picture, hidden between the lines, we see this. Herodias' daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, who the commentators believe was probably a young teenager at this point in time, dances in front of the guests. In that drunken environment, I cannot believe that the daughter of Herodias danced 
was some sort of cutesy dance. But rather, she pleases in a way which creates a lust-filled response by Herod. Think about that for a minute. Herodias is willing for her daughter to engage in an act. Herod is willing for his wife's daughter to engage in an act which ultimately does not protect her, but places her right at the front of a pattern which spirals. It seems to me it just spirals out of control, driven by all of the patterns of our our human brokenness. In Herod's hubris, in his bravado, he proclaims this oath to this young girl. I'll give you whatever you want. Whatever you, you want, you can have. She doesn't know what to do. And it seems as though her response is to go to her mother. We see in verse 8, further on in the reading, we see the outcome of that. Prompted by her mother, she goes back to Herod and she says this. Give me here on a dish the head of John the Baptist. The legend has it that when the head is passed to Herodias, she stabs the tongue of John the Baptist with a fork. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's it's kind of emblematic of exactly the problem that Herodias had. This this schemer, this this one who is willing to use the opportunity to silence the voice that could break the moment of security for her, break her elevated position. If if Herod starts to listen to this, if she's if he starts to be swayed by this call to repentance, I lose my place. Equally we see Herod's response. He's disappointed. He's he's in this moment. He's he's struggling. The king was distressed. He's he's facing this dilemma. He's being confronted with something. He's being challenged in his behavior. And then he has the moment where he can silence it with the demand that he has made. And he doesn't want to silence it. He He wants to find a way out. But what stops him? What is it that stops Herod refusing the desire of Herodias through the daughter? The moment that we see is this, and it's the second idea that I want to bring to you. We kill the voice of conscience. At this very moment, Herod is faced with this demand and his response is to consider losing face. Losing face by the oath that he has made, whatever you want, I will give you. His status before the guests was more important to him than the life of John the Baptist and the truth that he spoke. But in that moment, both Herodias and Herod 
stand hand in hand in the pattern of our human behavior, which is that again and again, our corrupt inner being will again and again seek to kill the voice of conscience. Do you see what's happened? Corrupt life decisions way back. We don't know how Herodias and Herod got together. We don't know how Herod stole Herodias from Philip. But what we do know is that that very decision back there spiraled and spiraled and spiraled and the corrupt life decisions become greater and greater. And then we find that saving face is more important than truth and justice. Fear and greed caused them both to silence the voice, to slaughter the voice that was confronting their unrighteousness. And at the same time, we, we see that that conscience was not silent. In, in, at the end of it, at the beginning, sorry, at the beginning of our reading in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 14, we see this. this when Herod is reflecting on this Jesus of Nazareth, the introduction to the story of the death of John the Baptist, Herod is reflecting on this Jesus of Nazareth and his response is, this is John the Baptist, the one that I killed. He's risen from the dead. That moment is not a, a, a forgotten moment. The moment where Herodias demanded the head of John the Baptist, the conflict that it brought into the life of Herod, the conscience that it continues to gnaw away at him has not been slaughtered but when somebody else who comes along and represents that very voice again in Jesus we find that Herod's response is to believe that John the Baptist has risen from the dead that's how our conscience works isn't it Paul later on in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 he reflects on how the conscience works. He says that we show that the requirements of the law are written on our hearts. There is a law. And Herod knew deep down that he had broken the law for all the, all the reality that as the king, he could, he could shape the law. He could define the law to say that John the Baptist could be beheaded. He could make that decision. But there was another law that was written on his heart. A law which could not be erased. The, the law of God which defines inside of us what we know to be right, what we know to be wrong. And even when we do what is wrong and we call it right, our conscience will never allow us ultimately and completely to follow through on the belief that it is right but rather than the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. That's what the conscience does. This constant thing in the back of our human experience, which is 
I would say is one of the foundational reasons why the idea of us being made in the image of God seems to resonate with such truth. We are made to know a law in our hearts which is different to the law that we work out. So that the things that we know that we have done wrong, even though we believe them to be right, we know deep down are still wrong. And as Paul says, they accuse us. They continue to be there. And that is what Herod experienced. And so we see the, the death of this raging prophet as he continued his ministry of confronting unrighteousness. We see that he dies. But our particular context and, and the reason that I chose this particular account of the death of John the Baptist for us this afternoon is because this moment is in the light of John uh, Herod's experience of Jesus looking on at Jesus. So we've seen the injustice of the king. We've seen that together they killed the voice of conscience. But now I want to take us on another step. Because what John was saying again and again was that there is judgment coming, therefore repent. And Herod comes face to face with that judgment. We'll have another look in Luke chapter 23 and verse 8 to 12 now and, and see the account where the judge, where King Jesus comes face to face with King Herod. Jesus has been taken. He's been arrested. Pilate has seen that he is under the jurisdiction of Herod. These two enemies, Pilate and Herod, become friends as a result of this moment with Jesus. When he saw that he was under uh, the responsibility of Herod, Pilate sends him to Jesus. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Do you see the way Herod is with Jesus? He, he's like every despot that history has ever seen. When ultimate power is available, we have that desire to be excited by the little moment. Perform a miracle for me, Jesus, Herod demands. He's hoping to, to be thrilled by Jesus. Dance for me. Perform a miracle for me. Satisfy me. Let me see something exciting. Let me see something new. My life is filled with everything that I could ever want, but I want to see something new. And Jesus is brought before him and he hopes that Jesus is now going to perform some sort of sign. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you know, I think that that particular verse is maybe one of the most terrifying verses in the whole of the Bible. Because Herod thinks, he, he assesses the situation, he sees this 
one who John has been proclaiming, the coming judge. He sees Jesus in front of him, bloodied, beaten. He sees him weak, helpless, shackled. And he wants him to perform a sign. He, he perceives himself to be in the place of power. But at that moment, the true judge stands in front of Herod and does not speak to him. He is silent. How terrifying when the judge and the king is silent. When there is nothing that comes back at Herod from Jesus, it seems as if that moment, as in that very moment, it seems the silence of Jesus is conveying to us already, the time is too late for you, Herod. Your moment and opportunity for repentance has passed. And the one who can bring life is silent when the judge doesn't speak. I'm going to take us all the way back to the Queen's Gambit. One of the great things about chess is the idea, the concept that the king cannot be killed. There's various moments in, in, the, uh, in the television program where Beth plays a brilliant move and the grandmaster that she's playing against has got no option because she can never take the king. The grandmaster that faces her in the brilliance of her play has no option but to sacrifice his king and the dramatic moment as he knocks the king over and he falls down on the chessboard. The king is sacrificed. We see in this moment where Herod and Jesus are confronting each other, where they are face to face. It seems as if we see one king triumphant. It seems as if Herod is the triumphant one. He carries on his life. And it seems as if King Jesus is defeated. But this king can never die. And yet he does die. This king can never be beaten. And yet he is beaten. And the only way in which we can reconcile the message of John and the message of Jesus is when we understand that Jesus is both the king who sacrifices himself and the king who triumphs in judgment. When we understand that it is Jesus who is at that moment in front of Herod, not being beaten, not being defeated by Herod and Pilate, but actually sacrificing himself for those who will trust in him so that repentance might truly be gained. 
And the message of John and the reason that the message of Jesus is reconciled with the idea of a judge is because the judge comes first as a sacrificing king, a king who sacrifices himself so that the king can return in triumph as judge. The true judge, the judge that we see in the book of Revelation who, who comes to judge the whole world. Herod, you do not realize, but at this moment the judge stands before you and the injustice of the death of John the Baptist is being judged in the silence of Jesus. And the corrupt world that you represent is being judged in the silence of Jesus. And the corrupt hearts of you and me is being judged in the silence of Jesus. But in the silence of Jesus, in the one who lays himself down, the one who gives himself, there is hope for those who will turn to him and say, I trust in your sacrifice. I believe in you as the returning king who will deal with this corrupt world, who will resolve the brokenness when no injustice will be ever forgotten, including my own injustice. And there is hope. The injustice of the king killing the voice of conscience when the judge doesn't speak and the sacrificing king and judge. That's the reason for the season. That's the hope that we have, that the corrupt, broken world will be resolved in the returning king. The idea that Tolkien had in his final book, The Return of the King, there is hope. I'm really thankful that Ant can sing for us in a few minutes and we're going to pray uh, and then Ant will sing Cornerstone. Father, we are so thankful that the sacrificed king, the one who lays down his life, is also the returning king. We thank you that injustice is not forgotten. We thank you for the fact that the horrors that are seen in this world are not lost to you. And judge justice and judgment will be completed either at the cross of Jesus or in the day that you judge. As we see the hope in Jesus, May we find our hope. Amen.